2 Samuel 7, um, verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us the Bible. As we hear your voice today, please keep us from hardness of heart. Please help me to speak only what is helpful for building up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we are celebrating our church's 20th anniversary, or perhaps more correctly, Harrington Park, uh, our sister church, uh, their, their anniversary. 20 years ago, uh, in October, no, September 2002, a small church gathering was started in Harrington Park Public School. Now, a lot of things have changed since September 2002. At that point, I was three, like I mentioned. And here's a photo of me at church 20 years ago. There you go. Um, Looking pretty bored, I think. Anyway. But today, um, as we reflect back on the past 20 years of church, I want want to ask you tonight, what's happened, happened in the past 20 years of your life? Maybe you haven't even lived that long. Maybe like me, the past 20 years of your life have just been getting through school. Maybe that's been the trajectory that you've been on. Um, One of my favorite things about church is that every person here has a different story. For some people, it's been finishing school. But for other people, maybe the past 20 years have looked like years of long, hard work. Maybe it's been times of holidays and travel. Maybe you spent the past 20 years raising your kids, watching them grow up and go out into the world. Perhaps you've had a really tough 20 years. Or maybe you're feeling a bit at a bit of a lull 
Nothing much is going on, just kind of been drifting here and there. The big question that I want to get at in all this reflecting is, what's been the trajectory? Where have you been going that's led you here tonight on a rainy Sunday evening? What have you been doing? What have you, why have you been doing that? Looking back, looking back, what were you living for or working towards? God's word today uh, before us has some epic news. And my hope and prayer, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is that today we do not harden our hearts as we hear God's voice, but we ponder the wonder of, God's, uh, of, of what God reveals about himself and we ponder the magnitude of what he reveals about his plans. And in doing this pondering, I hope and pray that this might shape and change our lives going forward, perhaps for the next 20 years. So let's dive in to 2 Samuel 7. So far throughout the book of 2 Samuel, uh, there's been a lot of action. Uh, we started the book with the violent death of Saul in battle, and David had this big lament for him. Then David was anointed king of Judah, while Abner, the commander of Saul's army, had set up Ishbosheth as a rival king. What ensued was a bloody war between the house of David, which grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul, which grew weaker and weaker. Uh, in a hot pursuit, Abner impaled Asahel, the brother of Joab, who then later murdered Abner by stabbing him in the stomach. And to round it off, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was assassinated and decapitated in his own bedroom by two of his own henchmen, who were then punished by King David by having their hands and feet cut off and bodies hung up on the wall. Quite a messy opening to 2 Samuel. In the past three weeks, in chapters 5 and 6, we've read how David has conquered Jerusalem and defeated the Jebusites who were living there. He also defeated all the Philistines, who were Israel's longtime oppressors. Last week, we heard from Chris how the king had brought the Ark of God into Jerusalem and put it in a tent that David had pitched for it. So now when we come to chapter 7, verse 1, and read the words, the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, we might be tempted to think, well, it sounds like all the action's over and things are all set up and peaceful. Whatever comes next is probably going to be pretty boring. But I want to say, no, not at all. I'm going to make the bold claim, and this is a bold claim for a rookie preacher in his first sermon, but I'm going to make the bold claim that 2 Samuel 7 is in the top five most important chapters in the entire Bible. Big claim. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in this chapter, God makes an amazing promise to the house of David that the Lord himself will build a house for his name. This evening, I want us to see the weight of God's promise. But I also want us to look beyond the promise to see the heart of the promiser, to ponder the very character of God who makes this big promise. So let's get started. I hope you've got an open Bible in front of you. If not, you can look at the words on the screen. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord God had given him rest from all his enemies around him. It tells us a few things to orient us in the story. Uh, at this point, the king is settled in his palace. Remember back in chapter 5, the passage Oliver unpacked for us, we learned that Hiram, king of Tyre, had built David a, a palace out of cedar logs. 
And last week we heard from Chris that he had also brought the ark of God into Jerusalem. But now he's got a problem. King David's got a problem. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. David recognizes that he has been richly blessed by God. He's got a sweet cedar palace. He's got rest from his enemies. But now he nobly wants to see God honored by building him a house. A very noble thought. Because up until now, the Ark of God has just been living in a tent. Um, and so now he wants to give him, you know, a bit of, bit of an upgrade. And he expresses this to Nathan the prophet, who agrees with him. Verse 3, Nathan replied to the, to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Two little things to notice. So far, David is only referred to as the king. You look at in each verse, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, is the king, the king, the king. Secondly, notice Nathan's response, the Lord is with you. This has been a repeated refrain to describe David all throughout, way back since David and Goliath times, 1 Samuel 18, the Lord has been with David and not with Saul. Well, what does the Lord say? Point two, by the way, if you've got a bulletin as you're coming in, it has an outline of the talk on the back, that might help you as we go through. So to point to verse 4, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God addresses the king as my servant David. And he questions David's presumption to build a house for God in two different ways. Firstly, God says, David, are you the one to build me a house? The answer is no. Now, does this mean that God doesn't want a house? Not necessarily. We see later on in this very chapter that God does end up with a house. But contrary to David's idea that Israel has arrived, that they're settled in the land, he's got the palace, he's all set up, okay, now let's pay some attention to God. Contrary to that, God is not done with setting up his servant David as king. He's got more wonderful things planned for him. So he pushes his own house building further down the line. The second challenge that the Lord has for David is this. David, do you even think I need a house? At this point, we must remember who the Lord God is. He is the almighty creator. Paul describes the Lord God in Acts chapter 17. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not, need, sorry, does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath, and everything else. Does God need an upgraded house to live in? Of course not. He's God. He doesn't need anything that anyone could ever give or do. I hope you can see the bigness of God. God doesn't need our projects. He doesn't need anything. He is the Lord Almighty. But at the same time, we must look in our passage to see how the Lord himself describes himself. In verses 6 and 7, he recounts the story of his people, Israel, wandering around in the wilderness. From the time of the Exodus right up until this moment, which is about 300, 400 years, God has been dwelling with his people in a tent. 
So here, I want you to see the extraordinary humility of God. Do God's people live in tents? So does he. Do they move around all the time? He moves with them. He has not asked for a permanent physical residence because his priority has been to be with his people as they are on the move. I heard a story of a man named Sam Rayburn who served as the 43rd Speaker of the United States House of Representatives in the 1940s and 50s. There he is, looking pretty formal and fancy. The teenage daughter of a reporter that Mr Rayburn knew died suddenly. The next morning, the reporter heard a knocking at his apartment door. He opened the door and found Mr Rayburn standing there. I just came by to see what I could do to help. The reporter, stuttering and trying to recover from his surprise, indicated that he didn't think there was anything the speaker could do. The family were taking care of the arrangements. Well, have you all had your coffee this morning, the speaker asked. The reporter confessed that they hadn't had time to do that yet. Well, I can at least make the coffee then, he said. Rayburn went inside and made his way to the kitchen in search of coffee. And while he was busy coffee making, the reporter remembered that Rayburn usually had a stated weekly appointment on that particular morning. So he half inquired, Mr. Speaker, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. Well, I was, Rayburn admitted, but I called the president and told him that I had a friend who was in trouble and that I couldn't come. That's only a pale glimpse of the condescension of the covenant God, the God who stoops down to share in the hardships of his people, the God who is not ashamed to say that he has been traveling around in a tent with them. See how close he is. You may be forced to revise your theology if you think that deity and humility are mutually exclusive categories. If we understand the character of God rightly, as shown in this part of the Bible, then we shouldn't be surprised when we get to the New Testament in that famous passage of Philippians 2 where it describes Jesus. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the same Jesus who described himself as gentle and humble in heart. He is gentle. He is lowly. Chris showed us last week that humility is key to the Christian life. He had a really nice definition, didn't he? Humility is not thinking less of yourself in a sort of negative pride way, but thinking of yourself less often. I want to suggest to you today that humility is not only key to the Christian life, but it is at the heart of the Christian God. Let's keep going. Point three, verse eight. The Lord God continues to speak to the prophet Nathan. He says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now... I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they will have a home of their own 
and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will oppress them no, uh, no more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since I appointed leaders over my people Israel. And I will also give you rest from all your enemies. In this section, we again gain an insight into the character of God. He is gracious. He is gracious in blessing David personally, but also the wider nation of Israel too. The Lord starts by recounting his past blessings to David. Verse 8, he has taken him from being a lowly shepherd, the youngest of eight sons, to being the ruler and leader of God's precious nation, Israel. What a privilege for King David. Furthermore, in the past, the Lord has been with David. Uh, Like we mentioned before, the Lord is the one who cut off all David's enemies from before him, which is precisely why he's now sitting in time of peace in his cedar palace. But true to form, the Lord gives grace upon grace. From verse 9b to the first half of verse 11, God now promises a set of future blessings to David and to Israel. He He gives four promises, one to David, two for Israel, and then one more for David. So in verse 9b, the Lord declares that he will make David's name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Obviously here, we're reminded of God's big promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to Abraham that he will make his name great. Now, in 2 Samuel, God is now promising this same thing to David, one of Abraham's many descendants. Secondly, in verse 10, God blesses Israel. Uh, He promises to provide a place for them and that he will plant them so they can have a home of their own. God is again renewing his Abrahamic promise of land now to his people Israel. Thirdly, God blesses Israel by protecting them from their wicked oppressors who had been at them ever since the Exodus. These two promises of being planted in their own land and being freed from their wicked oppressors, these two promises have already begun to be fulfilled. Israel has entered the promised land. They've fought off all the enemies, including the resilient Jebusites and Philistines who sort of hung around for a long time. They've been planted on the place the Lord has made for his dwelling. And lastly, in verse 11, whoops, lastly, in verse 11, uh, the Lord promises to give David a personally rest from his enemies. God has answered, God is promising to answer David's repeated prayers. You know how all throughout 1 Samuel, when David's running around from Saul, he's chasing him and making life miserable. And as you read the Psalms, over and over again, David says, Lord, help me, rescue me from my enemies. Here, God is promising to answer that prayer, to give David rest. I hope you can once again see the rich character of the Lord our God. He is full of gracious blessing. He is such a good God. He is determined to see his people Israel flourish. He protects them and provides for them. He gives them grace upon grace. That is the character of the God of the Bible. David knew this. Chapter 5, verse 12. You might want to flick back a couple pages in your Bible. After Hiram, king of Tyre, has built David a palace and David's set up there, then, 5, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted David's kingdom. Why did God do this? For the sake of his people, Israel. God is the giver of gracious blessing. And he chooses to bless David especially with a great name and personal rest from his enemies. But now, in fact, God is about to do something epic and he's going to do it through his servant, David. 
up to point four, let's turn our attention to the climax of this chapter. God is about to take everything up to a whole new level. The second half of verse 11 is the key sentence. Here we go, verse 11b. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David started off this chapter by saying that he'd build a house for God, to upgrade God's tent into something more impressive. But here, God has played him a reverse card. God is now going to build a house for David. He flips it around. Now, hang on a second. Doesn't David already have a nice house, that sweet cedar palace that Hiram king of Tyre built him? Yes. God isn't talking about a physical house. He's using the word house to describe David's family tree, his line of descendants. We see that in verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. God is promising to establish David's royal dynasty over multiple generations. The Lord himself will establish this kingdom. This is how God is going to make David's name great. And notice that the promise goes beyond death when you rest with your ancestors. Secondly, notice how God uses the word offspring. Again, it's got those um, connotations of God's promise to, to Abraham. And lastly, notice that last word there. It's a kingdom. God is setting up David's kingdom. David is re receiving assurance of what every king wanted to hear, that his family, his house, his dynasty would be in power for a long time, long past his own lifetime. That's probably why David had so many children that we've seen so far in 2 Samuel, because he's securing his lineage to carry on his name, his house. And now God is giving a guarantee of that. Next, the promise takes another turn. Verse 13, read with me. He is the one who will build a house for my name. There it is. Not only does God tell David that he will build him a house, but God also says that one of David's offspring will indeed build the Lord a house. David didn't get this gig, we saw in verse 5, but rather God decreed that it would be one of David's own offspring instead. And we know from the rest of the Bible that in 1 Kings 6, David's son and successor Solomon does build a physical temple. There's a lot of back and forth going on here with the house. So let me just give you a quick recap. So firstly, David starts off by wanting to build a house for God, for the ark, so it's not in that little tent anymore. But secondly, God plays that reverse card on him and says that he, God, will build a house for David. And then thirdly, the Lord says, well, actually, yes, I will have my own house. But David, you're not the one who's going to build it. One of your offspring will. God doesn't actually seem to be that concerned about his own house, though, in the end. It's, sort of, it's only like half a sentence there. It's only a passing comment. The really big thing in verse 13 is the second half. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Reinforced twice more in verse 16. David's house, David's throne, David's kingdom will be established by the Lord forever. Not only is God granting to David what every king wanted to hear, but he is now unbelievably extending this promise out into eternity. This is why 2 Samuel 7 is in the top five chapters of the Bible, because it contains such a big forever promise of God to his servant David. Before we unpack how this is played out in the rest of the Bible, there's one more thing that we need to see here of this epic promise. Verse 14 talks all about relationship. God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. 
When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Covenants are all about relationship. These verses show us the kind of relationship that will exist between God and the forever enthroned house of David. It is to be a father-son relationship. Now, when we hear Son of God, our minds might immediately jump to the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he's often called the Son of God in the Gospels, even by a Roman centurion at his own crucifixion. But this straight away gives us a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Because if you look closely at verse 14, it talks about the Son doing wrong. And of course, Jesus never did anything wrong. He's perfect. How do we resolve this? Well, we need to rethink some of our labels. In the Bible, Son of God can refer to more than just Jesus. For example, in Exodus chapter 4, the nation of Israel is called the Son of God. In this case, Israel were God's adopted, in other words, God's chosen people. They were God's son. Here in 2 Samuel 7, God is saying that David's offspring will be called sons of God too. God will be the father to all David's offspring. In other words, God's chosen kings will be called sons of God. This is where we get the idea of a Messiah from. This is where the biblical idea of a Messiah is stemming from. It all stems from here. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. They both mean anointed one or king. Why were the first century Jews looking for a Messiah? Why do all the prophets point forward to a Messiah? It all stems from this chapter. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there were many Messiahs or many Christs. They were all in the line of David, and they were all called sons of God. We might jump to think that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the only Messiah. Now, we're right to think that because, of course, he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the most important one. But we also need to see that this promise that God gives to David refers to all of David's family, his ongoing royal dynasty. What extraordinary words from the Lord our God. He has said that he will, firstly, graciously bless Israel and David in the near future, reinforcing those Abrahamic promises. He's also promised to establish David's royal house, but more than that, promised that he would do that forever. And lastly, he's shown that the relationship between the king and God himself will be a father-son. Do you see why I'm claiming this to be the top five chapters of the Bible? 2 Samuel 7 is one of the big signposts along the path of God's unfolding salvation plan, pointing ultimately to Jesus. As we read the Bible from start to finish, we see God, the master storyteller, revealing his big rescue plan more and more. And as we read it, we can so clearly see that it's all about Jesus. Let me just very quickly show you. Genesis chapter 3, we hear about the promise of one of the offspring of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head. Who will be that serpent crusher? Genesis 12, as I've already mentioned, God makes those big foundational promises to Abraham. God says that he will bless the whole world through Abraham's family. Genesis 49, uh, Jacob is, going to bless his tw- is about to bless his 12 sons. And the blessing he says to his son Judah is this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And in 2 Samuel 7, our chapter tonight, David is promised an eternal royal dynasty. The Lord will establish the kingdom of his offspring forever. 
And finally, in the New Testament, we get to Jesus. Jesus, who is one of the woman's offspring. Jesus, who is among Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. Jesus, who was in the tribe of Judah. Jesus, who was even in the line of King David through his earthly father, Joseph. Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, David's hometown. Jesus, who was struck by the serpent as he paid the penalty for all the world's sin on that cross. Jesus, who crushed the serpent's head as he rose victorious in new life, holding the keys to death and hell. We even sang about that tonight. Jesus is the serpent crusher. The whole Bible, tracing all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. I hope you get a grasp of how big God's rescue plan is, how big and cohesive the whole Bible is with his one central character, his one trajectory, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also hope you can see how special it is for David to be so centrally wrapped up in this, to be caught up in God's master plan. As a side note, if this kind of stuff is interesting to you, if you want to learn more about what we call biblical theology, I've got two resources to point you towards. Firstly, listen to Master Plan. In case you didn't know, our very own Ben Pakula has produced what he calls a biblical theology rock opera. Is that right, Ben? That's, that's, that's it. It's a 14-track album that traces the story of God's unfolding master plan from Genesis to Revelation, and every, way of, every step of the way through, it points out how it's all about Jesus. Now, the music is all done by Ben, so obviously it's awesome, but the words will help you understand the Bible better. It's a no-brainer. It's great for listening in the car with or without kids. Buy a CD from Ben, find it on Spotify, listen to this album. It'll be really helpful for you. And secondly, there are a bunch of books, uh, great books on this uh, whole topic. The one that's been really helpful for me is one called GPS, God's Plan for Salvation. Uh, very easy for a very easy book for old and young Christians alike to read and gives you a hands-on approach to understanding the Bible. So what have we learned from all of this? I'm going to conclude with three points. And if you've got your outline there, you can see I've left some blanks for you to fill in. Firstly, we have seen that God's, we've seen God's character. We've seen that he is humble. He is the giver of gracious blessing. Amidst all the big picture, Bible overview, huge promise, serpent crusher business, I want us to not lose sight of the, the character of God. Don't get lost in the cosmicness of the promise and miss out on the character of the promiser. And I also want to ask, do you know him? Do you know the Lord God as he reveals himself here, humble, giver of gracious blessing? Do you, do you know him that way? Secondly, I want us to see God's master plan. The Old Testament really is all about Jesus. He's got a big plan, a big rescue plan. All the way through, the Bible's got one author, one message, one purpose, one destination, the person of the, person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center. It's all about him. And so if that's the case, this is my last point, where do you fit in with God's master plan? If God's got this big plan for the world, well, what's the big plan for your life? What's going to be the trajectory of your life going forwards? How will you spend the next 20 years? God is on a mission in this world. We're so privileged that we can look back through the whole Bible and see it all played out. The, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, he rose, he ascended, he is now ruling as king. 
what is God doing in the world now? He is gathering his church together, building it up, united under the risen Lord Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He's going to keep on doing that until Jesus returns. If that's what God is doing in this world, well, where do you fit? I wonder what our church will look like in the next 20 years. I wonder what night church will look like in the next 10 years. Will you give your next 10 or 20 years to see churches grow and the gospel preached in Sydney's New South West? I know that I want to be a part of that. I won't be here in 20 years' time because I want to be a part of seeing new churches planted to reach the crowds around us who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I know that I want to give my life to serving God's mission and God's king because can you think of a single better thing to devote your life to? Don't waste your life. God has fully revealed his master plan and is now gathering people under the rule of the Lord Jesus. So let's commit our lives to live in light of the eternal kingship of David's son. Let's recalibrate once again the trajectory of our lives from our default setting to living, for, uh, living to join in God's mission of building his church. Amen.